Amen. Well, like I said, if you got your Bibles, open with me to John chapter 8. We're going to move through the book of John looking at the seven I am statements of Jesus. We, we did uh, statement number one last week, which was Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. If you remember, we're in this series uh, called Deep Lives where we are talking about the kind of character that God calls us, calls us to possess as followers of Jesus. And in looking at that, we've looked at a lot of different character attributes, character traits, and we started last week talking about this idea of Christ-centeredness. And we gave a two-part definition of that. So if you weren't here last week, this is the little catch-up session right at the beginning of the sermon. Uh, we talked about Christ-centeredness as two things, essentially, a two-part definition. Number one is valuing your relationship with Jesus more than you value anything else. That's pretty simple, right? It's just saying this, this is more valuable than money. It's more valuable than my possessions. more valuable than any other thing in my life. I value it most. And we looked at Paul's statement in Philippians chapter 3 where he said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And right before he said that, he said, I, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them rubbish compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Like nothing else matters the way this matters. That's part one, valuing your relationship with Jesus above all other things. And then part two is allowing the implications of that reality, of that love for that relationship with Jesus to make its way out into every area of our lives. So from the sort of top of our head to the bottom of our feet, tips of our fingers to the tips of our toes, that we would be people who get that Jesus is not just someone to believe in, to get salvation, to have eternal life, but that Jesus creates a lens through which to look at life. His death and his resurrection, our faith in that, it creates a framework for the rest of life so that everything uh, is affected by that. You, you can never hold out another part of life and say, well, you know, my job isn't really affected by my belief in Jesus. Your job has to be affected by your belief in Jesus because Jesus, uh, as a center to life, then impacts every other aspect of life. So that's a quick summary of last week. All right, everybody with me? You good? Fantastic. All right, so let's dive in then and let's look at the book of John. And let me say as we, as we turn our attention to John 8, Essentially what I'm trying to argue is that Jesus makes the best center for life, that there's no other center to life that can be the center that he is. Now, there's no formula for Christ-centeredness, right? There is no uh, six-step process to becoming a Christ-centered person. There's no easy, you remember the easy button, right, the Staples commercial? There's, there's no easy button. Like, I can't give you an easy button to press. Now, I, I know you know that. I know that you know that there's not just this quick, easy process you know, that we could put on QVC and advertise for folks and then everybody would be, you know, Jesus Christ-centered people, right? So it, I know that you know that. So what we're attempting to do by looking at the seven I am statements of Jesus is just give you another tool for your tool belt, another piece of ammunition, if you will, to become people who have Jesus at the center of their affections. Because when Jesus is at the center of the affections, he's glorified and we thrive, and that's kind of the short version of what we're trying to do here today is to say, let, if you want to be Christ-centered, then Jesus has to be at the center of your affections. The famous theologian Augustine, St. Augustine, used to talk about this. And some of you may be familiar with that name. You may not be. It doesn't really matter. But St. Augustine used to talk about this rea reality that we essentially are what we love. He used to say that essentially we love things that are lesser more than we should love them, and we love the greater things less than we should love them. We disorder our loves it's kind of the long and short of St. Augustine's argument. And he says, look, when you order your loves rightly, when Jesus is your first love, when he's the thing you love most, all other loves align underneath him. And that's really wonderful because what it means for us is unlike some teachings and some philosophies and religions, 
This is not, following Christ is not about loving nothing else and getting rid of everything else and being sort of ascetic in your lifestyle and saying, I don't, I don't love you know, any of these other things. It's about rightly ordering those loves underneath Jesus as the giver of all good gifts so that you don't love those things. You love the supreme thing and then you love those things as a means to an end to loving him more and serving him more faithfully and more fully. But you have rightly ordered loves. So Augustine used to say it this way. He used to say, look, when we ask whether somebody is a good person, we're not asking what that person, what he or she believes so much or what they hope for, but what they love. That's what we're really asking. What do they love most? He also used to say it this way. My weight is my love. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. So essentially what he's saying is what you love will determine what you do, how you live, how you think. That's what we're attempting to do now as we look at the book of John. So turn with me to John chapter 8, verse 12. And as we look at these six, the rest of the six I am statements uh, in the book of John, I'll give you a little bit of context for some of them, but some I'm just going to read and then try and uh, unpack for you. So John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus speaking, he says this, And Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, there's a lot of different things that can mean, right? It can mean I can illuminate your path for you and keep you from stumbling. Uh, I come into the world to reveal things. Light reveals things, right? I, I show you the Father. In fact, Jesus later, we're gonna hear him say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's at least part of what he means when he says, I'm the light of the world. I reveal things. I make them plain, make you able to see the true nature of things. But one of the things that Jesus means when he says, I am the light of the world, is that I am able to declare to you what is right and what is wrong, what is light and what is dark, what is good and what is bad. I can create for you a moral compass. That's the language we use often in our society, right? I can give you a moral compass like nothing else can give you. Now, at the end of this, I, I want to show you the importance of all the things that Jesus is, able, is claiming to be able to do. But for the moment, just kind of go with me in believing in the importance of needing a moral compass, right? So there is a, a teaching, you know, in our context, secularism is on the rise. This, this worldview called secular humanism, which essentially teaches that there is nothing that is unseen in the world. There's no unseen spiritual realities that, that lie within the human being or that lie behind human experience. That essentially everything is what you can test for by science. It's what you can taste and touch. Essentially, there's nothing after death that this is really it. I mean, that's, that's secular humanism in a very, very, very small nutshell, right? Uh, but that, that view is on the rise. Now, let me also point out, because we live where we live and we often think that we're the center of the universe, that's just part of being a person sometimes, is being a little narcissistic and thinking we're kind of at the center. Uh, that's not true anywhere else in the world. Uh, maybe in Europe a bit, even that is receding. Uh, do you know that in most places in the world, Christianity and faith are on the rise? Uh, in the center of Christianity is no longer in the West. It's no longer in America. The center of Christianity is in Southern Africa and it's in Asia and it's in South America. Christianity is growing by leaps and bounds in those places. In fact, there are more Christians in each of those places individually than there are in America. Uh, so if you, you know, if you were want to think that we were kind of still at the center of this thing that God is doing globally, we're far from it. Haven't been for a long time actually. Uh, so we have much to learn from other parts of the globe. It's probably very telling uh, that our society is one, of the few, is one of the few societies around the globe where Christianity is not growing. 
that is probably something to take into consideration. But as we think about secular humanism and it being on the rise in our day and age, one of the challenges that comes with the worldview of secular humanism is this idea of a moral compass. The idea of being able to determine what is right and what is wrong. You see, in secular humanism, there is no higher power to declare to us this is right and this is wrong. We have that in Christianity. We have it in Islam. We have it in Buddhism. We have it in really every world religion. This higher power, higher authority that declares, okay, this is right, this is wrong. I'm going to provide a moral compass for you and tell you what you should and shouldn't do. Now, as much as secular humanists often want to argue that that's not the case, that you can be very moral within secular humanism, there is ultimately no higher authority to to base that upon. So the challenge becomes, uh, if I say it's wrong to murder, but you say it's right, well, who declares which one of us is taking the correct position? Who, who determines whether that's the case? Why should your view trump my view or vice versa? There's really, because there's no higher authority to appeal to, morality becomes completely subjective. And that's a very dangerous place to be, by the way. It's a very dangerous place to be as a society to believe that morality is completely subjective because when morality is completely subjective, then you can't argue that we should care for the poor. You can't argue that we should care for the sick. You can't argue that we should ever care for the least of these or do anything to help those. If I have power, I can wield it any way I want and no one can tell me that I'm being immoral in doing so because my moral code is equal to your moral code and it doesn't matter what you think. You with me? Does that make sense? So if that's the reality of secular humanism, now, when I say that, I don't mean to say that all people who are secular are immoral. In fact, far from it. Most of the people I know who don't believe in God are exceedingly moral people. The challenge, though, is that the morality is a borrowed morality. And what I mean by that is that it's a, it's a morality that is borrowed from some other worldview and then transported into Secularism. So it may be a, hey, we'll do the least amount of harm. Uh, that's how, or as long as I don't hurt anybody else, then I can do anything I want. You heard that version of morality before, right? That falls apart when you really think it through, by the way. Uh, so there's all these different versions of morality that are out there, and how do you pick which one matters? Well, Within secular humanism, that's the challenge, right? It doesn't mean that those folks are immoral, but it's a borrowed, borrowed morality in the sense that most of what is declared to be good and right and good and true is often borrowed from a religious worldview that says to murder is wrong or to care for people who are sick is the right thing to do. That's what you should do. Why do we do that? Because we have a God who's told us to do that, right, church? Because we have a God who said, I've come to mend up the broken I've come to care for those who have been disenfranchised and pushed. For, we should give those who don't have a voice, we should give them a voice. We should speak on their behalf, right? We should argue in favor of those who are in need of help. We should bind up wounds. That all is derived from the belief that there's a God who declares that it should be so. And there's really no other reason to, to do that. Now, <clears throat> If that's the case, if that's the challenge of secular humanism, then why can Jesus give us a moral compass? Why is he a better center for life in terms of giving us a moral compass than anything else? Well, like I said, with all religions, Jesus represents a higher authority, a higher power that is able to declare to us what is right and what is wrong. If he's divine, then he gets to declare uh, what is right and what is wrong. But again, Islam has that. Buddhism has that. Every, most world religions have that. But Jesus isn't just unique from a secular worldview. 
Jesus is unique from all other world religions because unlike every other world religion where there is an authority on high who declares what is right and what is wrong, we have in Jesus not just that authority in the divine, we also have a God who became human and lived and demonstrated perfect morality for us and came and lived a righteous life. In fact, knowing that we couldn't live the righteous moral life, he came and lived it for us so that his death and resurrection could count for us if we would have faith in him. The uniqueness of Jesus among all other religious worldviews is that he didn't just declare what morality is, he came and displayed for us what morality is. Do you see the difference? It's remarkable. Jesus is remarkable. Now, let's look at the next I am statement. In John chapter 10, so flip a couple pages over to the right if you're in John chapter 8. Now flip over to John chapter 10 and look at what Jesus says next. The next two I am statements are both in this chapter. Look with me at verse 7, verse 7 of chapter 10. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. That's the key. I want you to really hear that. If anyone believes in me, he will go in and out and find pasture. Okay, so when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, what he's saying is I'm able to give you a moral compass. When Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep, he's really playing on a metaphor, an idea that would have been very familiar to people in this day and age because shepherds, anybody know any shepherds? Not so much, right? Everybody knew a shepherd back then. This was normal, sort of uh, a normal thing to allude to. When Jesus says, I'm the door of the sheep, what he's essentially alluding to is the idea that he's able to give freedom, that Jesus is able to give freedom. Now, that may not be readily obvious right at first, but let me explain how that's the case. Uh, In this day and age, in the ancient Near East, when a shepherd wanted to protect his sheep at night, what he would do is he would build a sheep pen and he would make it out of rocks. And it would be high enough where a wolf or some other predator couldn't get in to attack the sheep. But of course, the sheep still had to be able to get in. And being out where they were, there weren't a lot of materials to make a door with hinges and all that sort of thing. So what a shepherd would do would build a rock wall, uh, a rock enclosure, and then leave one small opening in that enclosure through which the sheep could go in and out at night. That's what he says, you will go in and out and find pasture. That's what Jesus is talking about. Now what the shepherd would do is at night, once he got all the sheep into the, into the sheep pen where they would be safe and protected and able to thrive, he would lay down in the doorway as if to say, anyone that's gonna get to the sheep is gonna have to what? Go through me. And when Jesus says, I'm the door, he's saying, I lay down in the opening to the sheep pen where you should be, which should be home for you. It's the place of protection and safety and thriving for you. So come into my sheep pen. I will lay down in the door so that nothing can harm you. Nothing can come to you. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the door of the sheep. Now he's saying to us, he grants us access. That's what a door does. You get access, right? I grant you access, not just to the Father, but to the place of greatest freedom for you, the place of thriving. Now, when I say that when Jesus says, I'm the door to the sheep, and I say that what he's really saying is he's able to give us freedom in its truest version, that requires a different definition of freedom than the one we operate with normally in our society. So the typical definition of freedom would be something along the lines of, if I could paraphrase it, it would be the freedom to be and do whatever I want. 
right? That's essentially the operating definition of freedom that we are given again and again in our culture. And we have taken that and we have sort of writ it large into every area of life. I mean, we really press that idea of freedom to its strongly to its logical boundaries where we make, we make uh, claims that not even our biological realities can determine our freedom, that we should be free even from the biological realities of our life. That those things don't, I mean, in a, in, a, in a day and age which still taught this idea, they didn't stretch it all the way to biological realities. We do now. We believe that I sh- freedom, true freedom, means being able to be whatever I want and do whatever I want, regardless of what anyone else thinks including any creation, creative higher power. That's our operating definition of freedom. And I gotta be honest, that sounds pretty good at first glance. When you hear that idea, oh, freedom to be and do whatever I want, that appeals to the narcissist in me, okay? That appeals to the part of me that says, oh yeah, I don't want anyone stopping me from doing what I wanna do. I wanna be able to do whatever I want. But when you trace out the logical implications of that definition of freedom, it really uh, comes up wanting in a variety of ways. A better definition of freedom is freedom to thrive in, in all that God made you to be. That's a better and a biblical definition of freedom. That's really how the Bible speaks about freedom. It's not freedom without limitations. It's freedom with the right limitations so that you can be what it is that God made you to be. So, This idea of the right limitations actually being the key to freedom, it plays itself out in a thousand different ways. There's actually a famous marketing study. So this, these, it's it's all over our world. The fingerprints of God are all over our world and we just miss them all the time. There's a famous marketing study done with jams, like jelly, right? Anybody heard of this marketing? It's pretty famous if you're in business and marketing, right? So years and years ago, the study was done this way. At a grocery store, set out a bunch of jams, right, for people to sample and then give them a dollar coupon and see how many we can get to buy the jam. So the first thing they did was put out 24 different types of jam. Now that is a lot of jam, right? And they found that when they put out 24, I mean, I'm talking about blueberry and raspberry and peach and I mean, just everything you can imagine under the sun. I mean, if you wanted a type of jam, it was there. I'm talking about complete freedom in your jam selection, Okay. And they found that more people came to sample the jams. I mean, they, they drew a large audience to give them that many options. Do you know how many people purchased jam when there were 24 options available to them? 3%. 3% of people, even given a coupon, having sampled, it was just overwhelming. There's too many choices, right? It's daunting. Then they switched it and they put six, six types of jam out, just six, come and sample. Try limited, limited for sure, but come and try and guess how many people buy when there's six options available? 40%. 40% of people, right? When you're given the right limitations, it creates an opportunity to thrive in a way. I mean, that's just a small illustration. Look, you don't have to go any further than if you consult any missionary who's been on the field for a while in a non-Westernized context and then you bring them back, uh, the the overwhelming uh, operation of just going to the grocery store is unbelievable. A man and I were talking about this yesterday. We had a friend, a good friend, who her parents were on the mission field, came back, and she and her mother went to the grocery store together, and mom said, I'm gonna go get some cereal. And she went in the cereal aisle, and her daughter said, who's our friend, said, oh, okay, great, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go get one or two other things, and then I'll come back. 
Great. So she went and got an item. She came back and noticed that mom was still standing there in front of the, in front of the cereal aisle options. And she said, well, she's still selecting. So she went off and got another thing. Came back. Mom's still standing there. Right? Went, went and I'll go get a third thing. Went and got a third thing. Came back. Mom is still standing in the cereal aisle just staring. Hasn't picked up a box. Hasn't done anything. She walked up and goes, Mom, what are you doing? She, she goes, I'm, I'm paralyzed by all the options. I, I, I had three options where I lived. There are 8,000 cereals in your aisle if you've been down the aisle at Giant recently, right? There are so many choices and that can paralyze you, right? Now that's just a small illustration of the idea that the right limitations create freedom, true freedom, to thrive and to choose and to move forward and to be what it is that we were designed to be. Now why can Jesus give us this freedom? Right? Why can Jesus give us this freedom? Well, the reason Jesus can give us the freedom is because he's able to do what you and I can't do. Here's the scary part of our definition of freedom, of being able to be and do whatever I want. That's a great definition. As long as I have the power to control the future and as long as I have the ability to control all circumstances around me. If I can do those two things, if I, if I have complete and perfect knowledge of the future, I know what's gonna happen, I know what's coming down the pike, and I can then control the, my circumstances around me to adjust to that future and, and make it work the way I need it to work, then complete freedom is great because life doesn't act upon me, I act upon it. But most of us know intuitively, as I say that, you intuitively know you don't possess that kind of power, right? Do you know what will happen 10 minutes from now? No, you're like, hopefully the sermon will be wrapping up. But other than that, you have no idea. And I'm going to tell you, you're wrong. <laughs> you don't know the future, right? Nor can you control me, right? How many of you wanted to control someone this week? You wish that you had the ability to just get someone to do what you wanted them to do. You can't do that. So operating with that kind of definition of freedom, when you lack that kind of power, is really dangerous, but now transfer that over and think about Jesus as our center of life and being able to not just give us a moral compass, but being able to give us true freedom because what can he do? Does he know the future perfectly and completely? He does. Does he possess perfect power to be able to manipulate any circumstance the way he wants it to be manipulated and turned? He does. So is it better to operate with a definition of freedom that says I will be in control of everything that I do and am or is it better to say I will come underneath the power and authority of the good shepherd, the, the door to the sheep who invites me into the place where I can find pasture and he will determine my limitations for me. He will say you will do this and not do that. You will go here and not go there. Which one is true freedom? Which one creates true thriving? My argument would be that Jesus creates a better thriving when we look to him for our true and better freedom. Let's look at the next I am. So he doesn't just say, I am the door. He doesn't just say, I am the light of the world. He now says, I am the good shepherd. Look with me, same chapter, just the next verse. Chapter 10, verse 10. And Jesus says this. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. There's the thriving we were talking about. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. 
Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock. I want you to key in on that. There will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Okay, the primary idea in this analogy of the good shepherd, when Jesus says, I'm not just the door, I'm the good shepherd, the primary idea is that he's able to protect us. I don't know, you, you probably caught that, right? I lay down my life so that your life can be protected. That's essentially the model that he's giving us for the good shepherd. The hired hand sees the wolf coming, flees because he doesn't own the sheep. They're not his. They're somebody else's sheep. And so he's not as concerned about it. But the good shepherd owns the sheep, loves the sheep, and will, when it comes down to their life or his, will choose to give up his. Now that's powerful enough. But Jesus is doing something else here when he starts talking about this idea of the flock. He says there is one flock. Now he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, right? There, there are Jews who are of his flock, and now he needs to bring in Gentiles. He said, they're not yet in my flock. I'm going to go get them. I'm going to bring them in, and there's going to be one flock. When Jesus starts talking in that language, what he's talking about is the ability to give an identity. When Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, one of the things he's saying is, I can give you an identity like nothing else can give you. Now, an identity is a place from which we derive our value, our sense of value, that we, have, that we are valuable, Right? That's what an identity is. Now, throughout human history, most of us, most humans, have, have gotten their sense of identity from the groups they belong to, at least in part, in large part, from the groups that we belong to. And Jesus is talking about a group that we would belong to that would give us an identity, a flock. He says, you become part of my flock. That's what gives you your identity. It's what gives you your value, that you're mine and that you're among mine. Now, Throughout human history, like I said, we've looked to other things. We look to different groups to get our sense of identity from. So, you know, I'm Pennsylvania Dutch, right? I'm not, but get the idea, right? I'm Texan. You knew I was Texan, right? Right? And you knew that. Why? Because I talk about it too much. Right? Or I'm black. Or I'm white. Or I'm from this place. Or I'm from that place. Or I'm a Steelers fan. Or I'm an Eagles fan, right? Look, the reason... And here's what happens. When we derive our identity from those groups, right, we have, to, we have to, anything that threatens the culture or the values of those groups threatens our culture and threatens our sense of value. It threatens our identity. And so it has to be put down, right? This is why as a Cowboys fan, I can never say anything good about the Eagles. It would demean my identity to ever acknowledge that there's anything good about the Philadelphia Eagles. That's the truth of the matter, Okay. That's what group identities do. That's where they're drawn from, right? And Jesus is saying, come to me and I will give you a different group, an identity group to end all identity groups. No longer will it be I'm black or I'm white. No longer will it be I'm a Cowboys fan or I'm an Eagles fan. No longer will it be I'm from this place or from that place. Your identity will now be derived from the fact that you belong to me. The identity group to end all all identity groups. And this is important because we wreak havoc with drawing our identity from our people groups. I'll give you an illustration of this. Malcolm Gladwell, who's an author and writer, you've probably read some of his stuff. He has a great podcast I'd encourage you to listen to. It's called Revisionist History. Uh, he does about 10 episodes per season. He's in season two. And he did an episode called Miss Buchanan's, I need to make sure I get the title right. I wrote it down for myself. Miss Buchanan's Period of Adjustment. 
And he was discussing the unseen effects of the 1954 Supreme Court decision, Brown versus the Board of Education, which was from Topeka, Kansas. Now, many of you are familiar with that. You recognize that Brown versus Board of Education was the Supreme Court ruling that found it unconstitutional to have separate schools for black students and white students, that people of all races could attend the same school. Uh, And that was a good Supreme Court decision, one that we are thankful for. But what we don't often see is what Malcolm talks about in his podcast, the unintended consequences of that. Now, when the plaintiffs in Brown versus Board of Education brought their lawsuit to the Supreme Court, they brought it not on the grounds that the black school that this young girl had been attending was lesser than the white school that, she, that was closer to her home, but on the grounds that it was unconstitutional for anyone to declare to her she could or couldn't go to a certain school based upon her race. Now, when this became the law of the land and the Supreme Court passed it in 1954, an interesting thing happened. And this is what Malcolm traces out in his podcast, right? All the black schools were closed and all the white schools were integrated, which meant that all the teachers came from the what school? The white school. And all the black teachers were without a job. And it didn't matter how excellent their qualifications were, how much experience they had, how superior they were to a teacher in the white school. It didn't matter. They weren't given a job or any opportunity. So you have a whole labor force, a whole host of teachers who are dismissed Kind of feels like one step forward, one step back, doesn't it? Why does that happen? Because we derive our identity, our sense of value from the groups we belong to. And we will group by anything, by race, by team affiliation, by area of the country we're from. Jesus has a better group to call you to belong to. Here's why Jesus can give you an identity that doesn't crush others and doesn't crush yourself. Because the flock that he invites you into, that gives you identity and value, his flock is one that you get into, not because of anything that you do, but because of what he has done, which means that you can never be ushered out of that flock for not doing enough. You can never lose your place in the flock because you got in based upon what he did, not what, what you did. So your performance is not your reason for being in the flock. So you're not crushed. You can have a stable source of identity. The next thing it does is it says anyone who believes can come. And it doesn't matter where you're from or if you're rich or poor, if you're black or white, if you're male or female, it does not matter. Everyone comes through the blood of Jesus. And if you come, you've got a place in my flock. There is supreme King Jesus and then there's everybody else. There's no hierarchy in the kingdom. There's no this person over that person this group over that group. There's only the flock of Jesus so that our identity doesn't crush us and it doesn't crush others who are not like us. It invites us all in to the identity group to end all identity groups. You with me, church? Next I am statement. Jesus says in John chapter 11, verse 17 through 27, I am the resurrection and the life. Now you may remember this story Jesus is talking with Mary, he's talking with Mary and Martha, whose brother Lazarus has died. And when Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick, he lingers where he is and doesn't initially go because he knows that he's gonna allow Lazarus to die so that he can raise him from the grave and glorify himself and show the reaches of his power to those who would begin to understand he can multiply bread and he can heal the sick, but they would have never imagined he could raise the dead. And in this whole conversation with Martha, I mean, just great compassion from Jesus, who even though he knows he's going to raise Lazarus, weeps 
over the death of his friend, as if to say, I'm not indifferent to the consequences of human life. It matters to me what happens in your life. But in the conversation with Martha, he says this in verse, let's see, where do I want to pick up here? I flipped one page too far. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I guess, sorry, verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That's good theology, right? She knows there's a resurrection coming. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. This is a short one, right? I spent a little more time on that last one, but this is short. Here's what Jesus is saying when he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He says, I am able as the center of your life to give you a hope in relation to the future like nothing else can. I am able to give you a hope that on the other side of death, there will be something. There will be a resurrection you will find life on the other side of the grave. Now remember, again, in secular humanism, there's nothing on the other side of the grave. And the difficulty is finding life worth living when you believe that there's nothing at the end of it. Like what, what, what purpose, what meaning, we're gonna talk about that in a minute, but what purpose or meaning could any of my actions have if none of them, if they all end at the grave? If that's it, what do I do? Why does it matter what I do? And Jesus comes and he says, oh, let me tell you, there's life beyond the grave. I'm the one who can usher you into it. Now, here's the thing I thought about as I thought about this whole week. It made me think about the Holiday Inn Express commercials, oddly enough. So my favorite Holiday Inn Express commercials, do you remember these? Like, I'm not a doctor, but I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. Yes, somebody, anybody? All right, good, a fantastic. My favorite one, my favorite one. Guys at a book signing, uh, some sports athlete hero, somebody who he really loves, and he gets up to the front of the line and he freaks out so bad about, about he's about to meet his hero and have his book signed that he just passes out and falls flat on the ground. And someone who's like an attendant at the book signing walks up and gets down and goes, all right, everybody, give him room, give him room, give him room, let him breathe, give him room. And then he goes, did anyone stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night? To which the guy who's next in line goes, I'm a doctor. And he looks at him and he goes, Did anybody stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night? Here's, there's a reason behind that story. (laughs) You see, Jesus is not like other religious figures. Because every other religious figure and teaching tells us, hey, there's something beyond death and here's how you get there. But how do they know? Did they go through death? They're like the guy going, I'm not a doctor, but I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. Trust me on this one. It's gonna be good. You do these five things, you're in. Life after death. And Jesus is unique among all others because he went through death, was resurrected, and now declares to us, oh, there's life on the other side of the grave. And how can I guarantee you that? I'm alive. Do you see the uniqueness of Jesus? How good is he? And here's the beauty. He didn't just go through death himself. He made a way through death for you and for I. If we just believe, that's a future hope. It's better than all other future hopes. Next I am statement. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. In John chapter 14, one through six, let me read it to you. Flip a couple pages over. 
Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? That's a great image. Jesus is preparing a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, that you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas, good old Thomas, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now here's what Jesus is saying when he says, I am, I'm the way, right? Similar to the idea of the door, he's saying, I'm, I am the way to have access to the Father. No one comes to the Father but by me. But there's more going on there than just the idea of access to the Father as the one way to get reconciled to God the Father. He's actually saying that between this day, the day that I live now, and I'm living and breathing and moving today, and the day that I will be ushered into the presence of the Father, Jesus is able to give meaning and purpose to life like nothing else can. You know that big question, that big esoteric overarching question that we ask all the time, right? What is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? Like what gives meaning and significance to anything that I do? Why does it matter that tomorrow I'm gonna go to work and I'm gonna sell this thing or that thing? What does it matter that I'm gonna go to work tomorrow and that I'm gonna teach this person or that person? I mean, what is the value in that? Like, why does it matter? The answer that Jesus is giving us is he's saying, I am able to, when you make me the center of your life, I am able to impart meaning to to the greatest details of your life, to everything that you do. It can have immense meaning and significance. Now, if I had time, which I don't, If I had time, I'd love to discuss with you the sort of current philosophical understanding of the secular worldview that says, essentially, um, the key to not being so disturbed by this idea of a meaningless life is just to let go of the idea that life is supposed to have any meaning. And if you'll just let go of that idea, then you can create your own meaning. You create your meaning in life, and you create yours, and you create yours. But there's no overarching big story meaning. Like, there's no big M meaning. There's just little M meanings. Yours and yours and yours and yours and mine. And we'll all just try and live those out. It's essentially, and even those who argue for it, essentially say that's kind of the only way to get rid of this, this sense of angst and discontent that comes from the secular worldview that says life is supposed to have meaning. Well, if you just let go of the idea that it's supposed to have meaning, then you won't be so bothered by it. That's a tough one to live, friends. I just say, that's a tough one. And forgive me if I'm, I don't mean to be snarky about that if you're coming from a secular perspective. I just think that's tough. It's just a tough way to live. But Jesus comes in and he says, look, I'm, I'm the way. I'm able to show you not just how to live, like what's right and wrong. I'm able to infuse meaning into everything that you do. And how does he do that? How do you get meaning from life? Well, there's two things you need to have meaning and purpose in life. Number one, you need to believe there's an overarching story that's being told in all of human history. That you're part of not just your life. It's not just this random happenstance. Like you landed here and you're just kind of floating along and then one day you won't be here anymore. But in order to have meaning in life, you need to believe that there's an overarching story that's being told in this entire universe. And the second thing you need is to believe you have a part in that story. Is to believe that your life matters in the advancement of that story. You see that? And when you have those two pieces then you can begin to believe that your life has meaning. The job you do, the family you're in, the, th- the choices you make, the friendships you develop, 
the things you write, the art you create, all those things can have immense meaning because they're a part of the grand narrative. Now, friends, the thing of why Jesus can give meaning to life is because his life, his death, and his resurrection are the center of the story of all human history. He's not just the center of individual lives. He's the center of all of human history. And when you understand that his life, death, and resurrection point to the reality that there's a creation and then a fall of people away from God and then a redemptive story that's worked out at which he sits as the pinnacle so that his death would purchase us in spite of our sins, he would pay for them. And then his resurrection points to the reality that there is a coming restoration that will come one day for us. When Jesus is at the center of the story, all of a sudden, all of history lines up and makes sense in a way that no other center, there is no other center to human history that can make sense of all that happens across the globe throughout all the history of humanity in the way that Jesus can. The last I am is Jesus saying, John 15, verse one, I am the true vine. Now, all I wanna say about that is this, it's really simple and short. When Jesus says, I'm the true vine, he's essentially saying, look, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you wanna thrive, if you wanna flourish, you gotta be connected to me, abide in the vine. He's gonna say it later in John 15. All he really means is, I'm summarizing everything else that I said in my other I am statements. I am the bread, I satisfy. I am the light, I can show you what's right and wrong. I create flourishing and thriving. That's what he means when he says, I'm the true vine. Be connected to me, I'm your source of life. I am your best center. It's a summary of all the other I am statements in essence, right? So here's the thing, just to close up shop now. Is that close to 10 minutes? Probably not. Here's the thing. Worship team, why don't you come on up? I wanna sing that last song. So worship team, come on up while I'm making this last point. Just ignore them, focus. <laughs> Here's the thing I want you to see. In Tim Keller's book, The um, Making Sense of God, which I'd highly recommend to you, Tim Keller's book, Making Sense of God, in that book, he points out that secular philosophers, secular folks would say that any center to life needs to be able to provide you with six things. Hope, identity, moral compass, meaning, satisfaction, and freedom. Those six things. Well, we just looked at the seven I am statements of Jesus and what did we discover that he's able to give us? Hope, identity, moral compass, meaning, satisfaction, Freedom. Now, is that an accident? Jesus is the thing the world's looking for and the world doesn't know it. He gives what no one else can give. So friends, all those other things that crowd in and try to become the center of life, they don't make good centers. None of them. Your family can't bear the weight of being the center. Your spouse can't bear the weight of being the center. Your job, money, none of it. None of it can do. Jesus is our true and best center. Let's pray and then let's worship him to close our time together. Lord Jesus, thank you for the truth of your word. I pray that you would, Holy Spirit, take the teaching of your word now and cause it to just land afresh in our hearts and you would teach us how to apply it. Give us strength to make you first and most in our affections. We do love you. Help us to grow in our love for you so you'd be supreme in all things in us. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together.